I'm speaking to uh, New South Wales MLC, Sue Higginson, who is uh, he's going to ch- talk us through some of the findings and recommendations of the uh, Legislative Council response to major flooding across New South Wales report, which has just recently been released, just last week. And uh, also then we're going to talk about the uh, the upcoming debate on uh, native forest logging happening in Parliament. But I should say thank you very much, Sue, for joining Environmental as Anything again today. Oh, thanks for having me, Sean. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure indeed. Look, um, I've got in front of me just the findings and recommendations from this rather weighty report that you've been involved in uh, compiling. And, you know, 21 findings and 37 recommendations uh, is a nice, neat summary of like uh, 170, I think, pages or so of a comprehensive inquiry into what went wrong and how it could be done better during the flooding. Uh, you, it seems to me that, it, uh, that in some, I would summarise it all as, it, it, you know, that, that, you, that you're recommending that uh, the New South Wales government should properly fund and plan basic services uh, within the context of the climate emergency. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary, actually. Um, I mean, you know, you can see from the findings the findings obviously come directly from the evidence that was presented to the um, committee and during the inquiry process. And it was, a, it was actually a really good and quite a comprehensive um, inquiry process. So uh, we actually had not only just the ordinary people can make submissions and organisations can come before the inquiry, but we also had this what we call this sort of open public session where people were able to just rock up and tell us what happened and what people experienced and what they went through. And so I think in that sense, there probably is not really many big surprises in the findings because the evidence presented was pretty consistent that, you know, the preparedness was really, really in the deficit um, and that ultimately uh, the government initially kind of got in the way and then... and. Fortunately, communities ignored uh, government's initial response and actually went out and rescued their neighbours, their family, their community. Um, And then perhaps the worst part, which everybody is aware of, is that um, shortly after the government support in, in trying to help people once the waters had receded was a complex uncoordinated and distasteful process that went that people had to experience. Mm. So from that, there's a number of recommendations about how perhaps we can do things better. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. It involves um, investment. It involves serious investment and also restructuring, some, some form of restructure around um, the, the, the agencies and the organisations that we have on the ground. Mm. that are meant to be responding. Mm. Yes, I mean, it's, it, it's, it struck me as, as somebody who was in my own small way helping to prepare for that flood, just to, just trying to pack uh, friends' belongings up above the flood water line that was expected, that in retrospect that we could have anticipated the, 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 the extra two and a half metres of flood that, that actually trashed all of those possessions after the fact, if only we had really been thinking about this in terms of the climate emergency. It strikes me that that if we want to plan for some 
something of that scale. First of all, we have to acknowledge that it is on the cards that we that we that it can happen, and indeed is likely to happen. And it's uh, so so that's the, that lack of preparedness seems to me to be uh, uh, you know a, a, a sort of denial that we're all in collectively. Yeah, look, it's interesting too because you know um, the Bureau of Meteorology. There's some you know great representatives from that organisation that presented and. Uh, a couple of things, you know, observations from that evidence was that uh, they seemed to suggest they had done um, everything they could do in terms of predictions and early warnings, etc. Um, but it, 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 it just seems that, yeah, the narrative of extreme weather events and their capacity to deliver things that we have perhaps not yet experienced or seen I saw that as a glaring omission, uh, just as an inquiry um, committee member participant. I, I, I saw that. It, it, this notion that, oh, the rain came, uh, we could see it was going to be big and bad, uh, and we, we sort of expressed that as soon as we noticed that at the very, very late, late hours. Um, but this, the, the broader narrative, as you're suggesting, that, Actually, we now know that sometimes these extreme weather event systems have capacities beyond what we've experienced previously. That seems to be... Um, it, it just seems non-existent in the narrative. And we're very much hoping now that, you know, there is... We've mentioned climate change in this report mm. and we are also really focused on trying to... And we've made recommendations about trying to make sure that all of the tools, all of the instruments of the Bureau of Meteorology, that they are all up-to-date, fit for purpose, and they are feeding local uh, timed information back into the Bureau, Bureau so that they can be giving better warning. But also, as you say, it's the climate narrative that really needs to go in there, the extreme weather event narrative. Mm, yeah, it, it seems it struck me that uh, you know the bureau, the SES, and a lot of other um, uh, institutions and, and agencies were given a pretty hard time after the event because they hadn't predicted it. But unless they get that leadership from the top to, to declare the climate emergency and tell them you need to start planning for that climate emergency, it, it's pretty hard for them institutionally to actually do so uh, off their own bat. If there's political resistance from above, uh, it's hard for them to take that on board. But look, there was there, one of the things that caught my eye in the report, and uh, you know, I must declare an interest, I am working for a community uh, broadcaster, but um, you know, telecommunication was a major failure during the, the, the this flood. A lot of people found that they could not access the internet, they couldn't access their mobile phones, and uh, and then our community uh, radio station, River FM, right here and now, uh, where I'm sitting right here and now, was uh, was was knocked out of commission by by its infrastructure being inadequate for the purposes. And it, it's it's great to see that there is a, at least an item and recommendation that the the uh, the government work with the community broadcasting sector to recognise and identify ways in which the community could be better supported to provide critical service during natural disasters with view to providing adequate long-term funding. Now, I'm very interested to, to hear from our perspective, do you think that's likely to get any traction? Do you think that the, the New South Wales government is going to be seeing that as a priority? Uh, look, it's, it's really hard to know exactly how the government's going to respond to the recommendations mm. and the... Um, 
the findings. I mean, there has been, you know, we've had, um, we've seen and heard Dominic Perrottet say that, uh, you know, we don't want to spare a cent. We want to make sure we get this right. I would expect that there would be a willingness and openness of the government to take on board all of the findings and recommendations. Um, and I'm still very hopeful that that is the case. I mean, the evidence around, um, you know, communications, telecommunications, messaging, etc., to the inquiry was pretty clear. It was very, very clear that actually uh, the more localised uh, something is, the more effective and actually the more efficient it is. Mm. So in that sense, that was a very, very broad, consistent, clear theme. Um, it, it, and it resonated through all aspects, whether it was, uh, you know, pre-flood, during flood, post-flood. The more localised, community-based um, the system is, the more effective and efficient it is. And I think that that is really clear in both the findings and the recommendations of this report. And I think that's really clear in so many of the stories and um, so many, so much of the evidence of what we've seen. Mm. Uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the, tinny, the tinny rescue army, as it's been referred to, yeah. you, you know, you could not get something more localised, more grassroots, more disconnected from the major system. Mm. And yet it was the very thing that was the most effective at preventing loss of life. Mm. So you, you sort of start there and then you look at all systems. And we, we've seen this, you know, we see it, for example, with uh, the Koori Male resilient Lismore compared to resilient New South Wales mm. in the response phase. So the more localised, the more community-driven the system is, the more effective, the more efficient and the more successful it really is. Yeah, it strikes me that there needs to be a, a culture within those uh, those institutions, those those agencies, that they deputise the community at the time because it does seem to be this moment where, where those agencies sort of look and go, well, we can't authorise you to do anything, for, you know, for insurance reasons, which is an absolutely outrageous limitation, that insurance should be a limitation on, 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 a, on a disaster response. But, you know, like surely there must be a simple way that, the, the, that we can institutionalise the process of, of deputising the local community to say, yes, go ahead, you have authority now to, to, to work in the space that you need to and we'll give you whatever support we can as, as deputised individuals, you know. But anyway, that's... Absolutely. A th I, I, no, you're absolutely right because, I mean, we actually saw this almost the perverse converse of that and that was that moment and it was a terrible moment and I'm, I, I don't blame, you know, nobody is blaming any individuals on the front line. But that moment when the sun came up and there were members of the institutional organisations telling members of the community they should not get in their tinnies, mm. get on in the water over the roads and go rescue their neighbours, their friends and their communities. I mean, the report acknowledged that that in fact happened and thank goodness those people didn't listen to the state authorities at that point in time because people would have died. So we, we, we saw that and that there's nothing uh, more transparent than that did happen. And so that is something that is now out in the open. So we really, really need to understand that this uh, mentality of liability, insurance, uh, risk, we need to take a brand new lens to that mm -hmm. and where you have community 
on the ground that knows their local environment, understands it, is willing to take risk to save life, we need to build systems around that to support that. So, yeah, we're, you know, this, this is what the climate frontier looks like and this is the response that we, we need to muscle up to. Mm. Yeah, leadership in, in, in developing systems which are, are not subject to the vagaries of capitalism. I kept having people straight after the flood, friends from, from afar, uh, far and wide, saying to me, oh, were you insured? Which effectively means, is capitalism looking after you? And I keep saying, no, no, capitalism's not looking after me. You know, like that's just not part of the picture here. Uh, if, if you're uh, eligible for flood insurance, then you're not subject to floods, basically. Uh, so uh, anyway, let's, let's, uh, we should move on because I want to, uh, in the time that we have left, discuss with you the other big burning issue on your agenda or on my agenda and, and hopefully yours as well. I know this week on yours as well is the upcoming debate on the uh, uh, the, the petition, the e-petition to Parliament to end native forest logging. Um, can you give us uh, any any news on that, any update on, on what you expect to see this week and what you hope to achieve out of all of that? Yeah, so, look, the, uh, an incredible young First Nations woman down on the south coast, Takesha Franks, set up a petition uh, to end native forest logging, basically, to on public land. So we, we, spoke to, we spoke to Takesha last week, so we did get a bit of an upset. Fabulous, yeah. fabulous. And, yeah, look, an amazing leadership there, inspired through seeing, you know, what she's seeing on the front line in the forest in the southeast, which of course is what's happening in the northeast and in the mid on the mid north coast, uh, the industrial scale logging of our public forest native forest estate. And so she set this petition up and once you get twenty thousand signatures on an e petition, it gets debated or in the House of Parliament, the lower house, so the Legislative Assembly. So she <laughs> There was an incredible, fabulous sort of social media backing of her petition and the petition got out there and it certainly got over 20,000 signatures, over 21,000 signatures. And so on the 15th of September, we've all been given notice that that petition will be debated um, on the floor of Parliament in the Legislative Assembly. Now, the issue... (laughs) This is a good thing because we need to be having this issue right now being discussed by our political representatives and those decision makers. And the difficulty that this petition will have is at the moment that will be discussed and debated between the government, the Liberal National Coalition government, and the shadows, so the Labor Party. Unfortunately, our my party, the Greens Lower House representatives, will not get to debate the, um, the petition. Right. But... The fact that it's being debated is important. The government, we anticipate, will stand up and say that they support the logging, the sustainable logging of our public forest estates. <laughs> Labor, we understand, recognises that... This is a, a very, very difficult nuance. Labor recognises that there is, we are likely to have to retreat and stop logging our public native forests, but they're not quite ready to say that yet. Um, so we're, we're in very, very interesting political times. The Greens naturally are on the floor saying we must end the industrial scale logging of our public native forest estate. We know we must. The science is telling us we must. We must end it. 
so that we can address the extinction crisis, but we must also end it because we know that these forests are very important in our frontline defence against the impacts of climate change and they help us do the thing that we must be focused on right now and that is sequester carbon and bring it down, draw it down out of the atmosphere. So the case for ending public native forest logging has been made. The, we know that Victoria has made an announcement. Western Australia has made an announcement. In fact, Western Australia is currently on the path of ending native forest logging and will do so over the next couple of years. So it, it, the pressure on New South Wales right now is immense. So this is one step. And while the debate may not result in a fabulous kumbaya, everyone sitting in the lower house of the New South Wales Parliament saying, fantastic, we're going to end public native forest logging and we're going to support those timber industry workers to transition in a just, fair and safe way out of those forests and into our plantation forest estate. Um, that's not likely to happen, but what's really important is this d- debate is happening. Yeah, so we hopefully it will flush out uh, some of the uh, some of the positions there. It'll, it, this debate might reveal if the ALP is going to lie down with the Barilaro koala killer dogs or if it's going to stand up for forests uh, before the next election. Yeah, and, you know, the next election is within sight. We're literally looking at uh, March 2023, uh, there's only a few more weeks of sittings of Parliament between now and then. And, um, you know, we, we, we have some serious work to do. We need to keep this very, very important issue on the agenda. You know, we just saw this week two more species added to the National uh, Threatened Species List. We saw the skink and we've seen the cockatoo now added. Um, we know that. Uh, particularly the cockatoo, we know that these forest environments are environments that, including our public forest estate that we're currently industrial, allowing the industrial scale logging of, we know that these are precisely the habitats, the food sources that all of these threatened species that are getting added week by week by week. And my word, this has been a very busy year of adding species to the National Threatened Species. Yeah. We saw the koala earlier this year, and now we've seen the greater glider, and now we've seen the black, glossy black cockatoo. The extinction crisis, is, it, it really, is just beginning. So these public native forests are actually a, quite a relatively small part of New South Wales, but my word, they are a very significant part mm. in terms of the extinction and the uh, extinction crisis and the climate response that we need. Mm. Well, obviously of deep concern to the people of New South Wales, there's actions taking place all up and down uh, the, the New South Wales forest estate uh, from from uh, from the Victorian border to the Queensland border. People are getting out and standing up for forests. So, uh, I mean, I know that you and the Greens are doing so in the upper and lower house of the New South Wales Parliament, so we thank you for that. But uh, I think we probably need to wrap it up there um, before today. Thank you very much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure, always. Thank you, Sean. And, yeah, thank you for everyone who's standing up for forests at the moment. It is really... Um, we're hoping that it is one of the election issues as we lead up. Obviously, there's lots of issues that are um, at the front of people's minds at the moment, but forests is one of those issues we need to keep up there too. Yeah, indeed. Well, thank you, Sue, for, uh, for joining us. And uh, we'll talk again soon, yeah. hey? Very much so. Thank you, Sean.
Don't work too hard. That was Sue Higginson there in Sydney, uh, our representative in the New South Wales Upper House uh, for the Greens and uh, for the rest of the st- for all of us in New South Wales, of course. Uh, but particularly having come from uh, you know as a farmer from uh, you know uh, just between Lismore and Casino, uh, you know well well representing our local area there and the issues that are of importance to us all. So thanks to Sue. And uh, hopefully we'll see the ALP actually uh, get up and stand up on their hind legs for the forests rather than lying down with Barilaro's uh, koala killers uh, because, uh, you know, really at the end of the day, they need to uh, get this across the line before the next election. Uh, just, just they need to take a, a leaf out of Bob Carr's book actually stand up and for something actually differentiate themselves from uh, from the, the 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 travesty of a government that uh, the the liberal national party are presiding over and uh, show us that they have vision for a way forward for us all